Hello, dear listener, and welcome to the Literature in Leaves podcast. My name is Luke Bartell, your host, and today I am sipping on some English breakfast tea because you will not catch me doing a podcast unless I have a glass of tea in my hands. Today's a special podcast, a very special one, because about a year and a half ago, I knew absolutely nothing about poetry. I really mean nothing. I looked up the best poets of the 21st century as a starting point. I didn't know what else to do. Before that, I had only really been familiar with older poets like Shakespeare, but I decided that I wanted to read some contemporary poetry, so I looked up best poets of the 21st century, and on almost every list, there was a particular name that I felt drawn to. Why I felt drawn to the name, I I can't be sure. But a year later, I picked up his collection. I loved it immensely. I even did a poetry project on his collection. So I've read it probably a good seven or eight times by now. The poet that I'm talking about is named Richard Sykin. And Richard Sykin is a masterful poet indeed. The interesting thing about Richard Sykin is despite being a widely acclaimed poet, He's a hard man to find. If you look up Richard Sykin on just about any social media, you're not really going to find him. Interestingly enough, you will find a lot of fan accounts. When you type in Richard Sykin to Spotify, there are many, many playlists with a lot of followers. One is simply titled, Richard Sykin messed me up because of how emotional his poetry is and how moving it is. Another one, and probably my favorite, is if Richard Sykin made music, it would sound like this. There are nearly 300 people that have saved that playlist to their library. On Twitter, there's even more Richard Sykin pretenders. There's something called the Richard Sykin bot that has 57,000 followers. Its bio reads... I post quotes from poet Richard Sykin every hour. And indeed, they do. 14 minutes ago, Richard Sykenbot posted, Do you know how it ends? Do you feel lucky? Do you want to go home now? And in an hour, in 46 minutes to be exact, Richard Sykenbot will post again. Currently, Richard Sykenbot has 40,000 tweets and 57,000 people that get those tweets every day. I bring this up because, as is probably clear by now, people love Richard Sykin, and yet he is nowhere to be found on the internet. I searched for an email, a Twitter, a Facebook, anything. I can't find him. Maybe he doesn't want to be found, but either way, we're going to be talking about Richard Sykin today. I'm going to start by going over a brief bio, a history of his life and some of his accomplishments, and then we will get right into his collection, Crush, which we'll be examining today at length. I'll be reading a few of his poems so that all of you can enjoy his poetry as well. Without further ado, let's get right into it. Richard Sykin is currently 54 years old. He's an American poet, he's a painter, a filmmaker, and he's the collection of Crush, 
It was published by the Yale University Press in 2005, which won the Yale Series of Younger Poets competition in 2004. This competition was judged by Louise Gluck, another very acclaimed poet, and she had some wonderful things to say about the collection, which we'll go over later. His second book of poems, War of Foxes, was released from Copper Canyon Press in 2015, but Sykin was originally from New York City. He studied and received a bachelor in, bachelor's degree in psychology and later an MFA in poetry from the U- University of Arizona. He's also an editor. Richard Sykin does wear many hats. In 2001, he co-founded Spork Press, where he continues to work as an editor. Sykin has received a literature fellowship in poetry from the National Endowment for the Arts, and his book Crush was awarded the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Men's Poetry in 2005, and the Tom Gunn Award from Publishing Triangle. This collection was um, largely based on the 1991 death of his boyfriend, and it is apparent throughout the book there is so much love there, but also so much loss. Sykin's most recent book, though, War of Foxes, was published in 2015. It was a little bit more recent, and it was a recipient of two residencies with the Lannan Residency Program and a Lannan Literature Selection. Sykin currently lives in Tucson, Arizona, where he works as a full-time social worker. Again, he wears many hats. And very, very sadly, on March 19th, 2019, exactly 364 days ago, Sykin reported on his Facebook that he had recently suffered a stroke. Richard Sykin, if you ever happen to listen to this podcast, I truly hope that you made a full recovery and that you're doing well. I've said some prayers for you. Now that we've gone over some of Sykin's um, literary acclaim and some of the accomplishments that he has had throughout his life, we need to dive directly into his poetry. Before discussing what others have said of his poetry and what Crush is about, so to speak, I want to read a poem from this collection. This is a poem by Richard Sykin called Scheherazade, and it is the first poem in his collection, Crush. Without further ado, here is Scheherazade. Tell me about the dream where we pull the bodies out of the lake and dress them in warm clothes again. How it was late and no one could sleep, the horses running until they forget that they are horses. It's not like a tree where the roots have to end somewhere. It's more like a song on a policeman's radio, how we rolled up the carpet so we could dance, and the days were bright red, and every time we kissed, there was another apple to slice into pieces. Look at the light through the window pane. That means it's noon. That means we're inconsolable. Tell me how all this and love too will ruin us. These are bodies possessed by light. Tell me we'll never get used to it. As you can see, Saigon is a wonderful poet who fully possesses language, who is able to take control while talking about subjects that would leave most of us out of control. Next, I'd like to read some excerpts from the foreword to this collection, which was written by Louise Gluck. Now, Louise Gluck herself is an extremely accomplished poet. She won the 2020 Nobel Prize in Literature 
and the judges praised her unmistakable poetic voice that with austere beauty makes individual existence universal. But as we know, today is not about Louise Gluck. Today is about Richard Sykin. Just know that Louise Gluck knows more about poetry than almost anyone in this world, and she had this to say about Sykin's collection. This is a book about panic. The word is never mentioned, nor is the condition analyzed or described. The speaker is never outside it long enough to differentiate panic from other states. In the world of crush, panic is a synonym for being. In its delays, in its swerving and rushing syntax, its frantic lists and questions, it fends off time and loss. Its opposite is oblivion. Not the tranquil oblivion of sleep, but the threatening oblivions of sex and death. The poem's power derives from obsession, but Richard Sykin's manner is sheer manic improv with the poet in all the roles. He is the animal trapped in the headlights, paralyzed. He is also the speeding vehicle, the car that doesn't stop, the mechanism of flight. The book is all high beams, reeling, savage, headlong, insatiable. Sykin turns life into art. Seems in these poems psychological imperative rather than literary ploy. The poems substitute the repeating cycles of ritual for linear progressive time. In Crush, the bullet enters the body and then returns to the gun. Cameras are everywhere and tapes, the means by which an instant can be replayed over and over and manipulated. The poems tense playbacks and freeze frames their strategies of control, delineate chilling certainties and immutabilities, which means, of course, the poems are driven by what they deny. Their ferocity attests to the depth of their terror, their resourcefulness to the intractability of the enemy's presence. Everything is a trick, the poems say. Everything is art, technology. Everything that is can still change. This is Sykin's way of saying the reverse. In these poems, everything is harrowing and absolute and deadly and real. For a book like this to work, it cannot deviate from obsession, lest its urgency in being occasional seems unconvincing. Books of this kind dream big. They trust not only what drives them, but the importance of what drives them. When they work, as Plath's aerial work, they are unforgettable. They restore to poetry that sense of crucial moment and crucial utterance, which may indeed be the great genius of the form. But the problems of such undertakings are immense. Platt's thousand imitators cannot sustain her intensity or her resourcefulness. The risk of obsessive material is that it may get boring, repetitious, predictable, shrill. And the triumph of Crush is that it writhes and blazes while at the same time holding the reader utterly sustained in their interest. What holds is sheer art, despite the apparent abandon. Sykin has a brilliant sense of juxtaposition, a wily self-consciousness, an impeccable sense of timing. He can slip into his hurting, hurling, unstoppable sentences and fragments, moments of viciously catty wit, passages of epigrammatic virtuosity. It is difficult, given the length of Sykin's characteristic poems, to convey in an introduction a sense of their cumulative, driving, apocalyptic power. 
their purgatorial recklessness. In other ways, this introduction has been difficult because of the poem's interconnectedness. The temptation has been to quote everything. Such difficulty is in itself praise of the work. We live in a period of great polarities in art, in public policy, in morality. In poetry, art seems at one extreme, rhymed good manners, and at the other, chaos. The great task has been to infuse clarity with the passionate ferment of in, in kitchen, the chaotic. Sykin takes to heart this exhortation. Crush is the best example I can presently give of profound wildness that is also completely intelligible. By Higginson's report, Emily Dickinson famously remarked, If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold no fire can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that it is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? She should, in that remark, have shamed forever the facile, the dec decorative, the easily consoling, the tame. She names, after all, responses that suggest violent transformation, the overturning of complacency by peril. In practice, this has meant that poets quote Dickinson and proceed to write poems from which will and caution and hunger to accommodate present taste have drained all authenticity and unnerving originality. Richard Sykin, with the best poets of his impressive generation, has chosen to take Dickinson at her word. I had exactly her reaction. Louise Gluck. I know that was a long reading, but it is necessary because... Louise Gluck described Sykin's writing in a way that, sadly, I never could. Sykin does write about panic. Sykin does write with urgency, but he remains in command of his craft, which is so rare. Sykin is an intense poet. He takes his writing seriously, and when you are reading his poetry, you will feel that you are in his head. You are on his turf. And all of the attention to detail, all of the urgency that Sykin feels when he puts pen to paper will be there for you as well. That is what makes him so special. Louise Gluck also remarked that so many poets try to appease the zeitgeist, right? They try to write for an audience. They try to write for an audience in a given time period. They try to guess what other people are going to like. Sykin does not do this. He put his craft and his art first, and the rest followed, which is one of the reasons that his poetry is so potent and so powerful. I'm going to read another poem by Sykin to immerse us deeper into this collection. Next, I'll be reading a primer for the small weird loves by Richard Sykin, of course. The blonde boy in the red trunks is holding your head underwater because he is trying to kill you, and you deserve it, you do, and you know this, and you are ready to die in this swimming pool because you wanted to touch his hands and lips, and this means your life is over anyway. You're in eighth grade, you know these things, you know how to ride a dirt bike, and you know how to do long division, and you know that a boy who likes boys is a dead boy unless he keeps his mouth shut, which is what you didn't do because you are weak and hollow, and it doesn't matter anymore. 
A dark-haired man in a rented bungalow is licking the whiskey from the back of your wrist. He feels nothing, keeps a knife in his pocket, peels an apple right in front of you while you tramp around a mustard-colored room in your underwear drinking Dutch beer from a green bottle. After everything that was going to happen has happened, you ask only for the cab fare home and realize you should have asked for more because he couldn't care less either way. The man on top of you is teaching you how to hate, sees you as a piece of real estate, just another fallow field lying underneath him like a sacrifice. He's turning your back into a table so he doesn't have to eat off the floor so he can get comfortable pressing against you until he fits, until he's made a place for himself inside you. The clock ticks from five to six, kissing degenerates into biting, so you get a kidney punch, a little blood in your urine. It isn't over yet, it's just begun. Says to himself, the boy's no good, the boy's just no good, but he takes you in his arms and pushes your flesh around to see if you could ever be ugly to him. You, the now familiar whipping boy, but you're beautiful. He can feel the dogs licking his heart. Who gets the whip and who gets the hoops of flame? He hits you and he hits you and he hits you. Desire driving his hands right into your body. Hush, my sweet, these tornadoes are for you. You wanted to think of yourself as someone who did these kinds of things. You wanted to be in love and he happened to get in the way. The green-eyed boy in the powder blue t-shirt standing next to you in the supermarket recoils as if hit repeatedly by a lot of men, as if he has a history of it. This is not your problem. You have your own body to deal with. The lamp by the bed is broken. You're feeling things he's no longer in touch with, and everyone is speaking softly so as not to wake one another. The wind knocks the head of the flowers together. Steam rises from every cup at every table at once. Things happen all the time. Things happen every minute that have nothing to do with us. So you say you want a deathbed scene, the knowledge that comes before knowledge, and you want it dirty. And no one can ever figure out what you want, and you won't tell them. And you realize that one person in the world who loves you isn't the one you thought it would be, and you don't trust him to love you in a way you would enjoy. And the boy who loves you the wrong way is filthy. And the boy who loves you the wrong way keeps weakening. You thought if you handed over your body, he'd do something interesting. The stranger says there are no more couches and he will have to sleep in your bed. You try to warn him. You tell him you will want to get inside of him and ruin him, but he doesn't listen. You do this. You do. You take things you love and tear them apart or you pin them down with your body and pretend they're yours. So you kiss him and he doesn't move. He doesn't pull away and you keep on kissing him and he hasn't moved. He's frozen and you've kissed him and he'll never forgive you. And maybe now he'll leave you alone. A truly haunting poem with a lot going on. And I think that this is sort of a quintessential representation of Richard Sykin's style as a whole. Remember what Luis Gluck said about panic that Richard Sykin never deviates from panic. And in this story, you can see that there's these disjointed memories of different people. There's all of these emotions flowing around at once. And it is hard to know where you are or what's going on before you're whisked away to a new place in a new scene. It's overwhelming and it should be overwhelming and it's powerful as it should be powerful. Now, I want you to also realize how Sykin sets a scene. 
he's very, very adept at this. Um, I think that Saiken being a filmmaker has helped him in his poetry as well. The poem that we just read, A Primer for the Small Weird Loves, is actually seven different sections in one poem that only spans three pages, three short pages at that. But Saiken has managed to fit seven scenes into one poem. It's not easy, but he does it. Additionally, I, I want to draw your attention to the language that Saiken uses in his poetry. I went through Saiken's collection and I circled all the words that repeat multiple times, the ones that you're likely to see, the important ones. Here's a few of them. Dream, dance, kissed, apple, light, love, night, sky, moonlit, heart, sound, whiskey, kisses, hands, you, I, beautiful, and if I haven't already said it, love. This is a book about panic, and yet the words that repeat are words of tenderness. This book was indeed based on Richard Sykin's boyfriend who passed away. There's a lot of love in these passages. There's a lot of tenderness. There's kissing. There's touching. There's a sort of agency over the body. Additionally, notice that some of the words that were in there that repeat set a scene. Whiskey, apple, light, dark, morning, night, moonlit. These are words that Saiken uses a lot. They're descriptors, but they're very specific descriptors that help us visualize what is happening in the poem, which is why I say that it makes very much sense that Saiken is both a painter, as well as a filmmaker. Saiken recognizes that to really draw someone into a poem, they have to have some sort of sense of how they are situated within it. Although we are always in a state of panic when we are within Crush, when we are reading Crush, we still notice things. We still notice what time of day it is, maybe the color of the walls, eating an apple, sipping whiskey, how the light falls on the walls of a room. Saiken feels that it's important to situate the reader somewhere, to really immerse them in a scene. This is another reason why his poems are so powerful, because although you are in a state of panic, although your mind is moving at a thousand miles per hour, if you put yourself in Saiken's shoes, you are still there and you're still receiving visual stimuli. I could go on and on about Saiken's craft choices, but I think that it's worth saying that sometimes when you read a collection, you don't fully understand it. You don't fully know what's going on, but you love it nevertheless. And that's how I felt the first time that I read Crush by Saiken. I felt that there was a lot that I didn't understand, and there was a lot that I needed to reread, that I needed to close read. And after reading his collection seven times, sometimes I still feel that way. But I find something new every time I read it. And to those of you listening, I would encourage you to try and do the same. Take your time when you're reading. Whether it's a novel or a poetry collection, take your time. Look at what the author is trying to tell us. Look at what the author 
is doing. There's a little test that I like to put poems through and collections through as a whole. I learned it when I was a junior in high school. My teacher, Mrs. Asgill, taught me. It's a simple list, and it goes like this. You ask yourself in a piece of writing, what repeats, what contrasts, and what is different, strange, or unusual. I'll say that a second time because it bears repeating. When you're reading, ask yourself, what repeats, what contrasts, and what is different, strange, or unusual. That's what I did when I was reading this collection, and that's how I isolated those words. Truly, the entire collection is different, strange, and unusual, but also delightful, and there's a lot to gain. Before we wrap up this podcast, I'd like to read one more of Richard Sykin's poems, and then I'll let you all go. This is Straw House, Straw Dog by Richard Sykin. I watched TV. I had a Coke at the bar. I had four dreams in a row where you were burned, about to burn, or still on fire. I watched TV. I had a Coke at the bar. I had four Cokes, four dreams in a row. Here you are in the straw house feeding the straw dog. Here you are in the wrong house feeding the wrong dog. I had a Coke with ice. I had four dreams on TV. You have a cold, cold smile. You were burned. You were about to burn. You're still on fire. Here you are in the straw house feeding ice to the dog, and you wanted an adventure, so I said have an adventure. The straw about to burn, the straw on fire. Here you are on TV saying, watch me, just watch me. Four dreams in a row, four dreams in a row, four dreams in a row fall down right there. I wanted to fall down right there, but I knew you wouldn't catch me because you're dead. I swallowed crushed ice pretending it was glass, and you're dead. Ashes to ashes. You wanted to be cremated, so we cremated you. You wanted an adventure, so I ran, and I knew you wouldn't catch me. You are a fever I am learning to live with, and everything is happening at the wrong end of a very long tunnel. I woke up in the morning, and I didn't want anything. Didn't do anything. Couldn't do it, anyway. Just lay there listening to the blood rushing through me, and it never made any sense. Anything. And I can't eat, can't sleep, can't sit still or fix things. And I wake up and I wake up and you're still dead. You're under the table. You're still feeding the damn dog. You're cutting the room in half. Whatever, feed him whatever. Burn the straw house down. I don't really blame you for being dead, but you can't have your sweater back. So, I said, now that we have our dead, what are we going to do with them? There's a black dog and there's a white dog. Depends on which you feed. Depends on which damn dog you live with. Here we are in the wrong tunnel. Burn, oh burn, but it's cold. I have clothes all over my body and it's raining. It wasn't supposed to. And there's snow on the TV, a landscape full of snow falling from the fire-colored sky. But thanks, thanks for calling it the blue sky. You can sleep now, you said. You can sleep now. You said that. I had a dream where you said that. Thanks for saying that. You weren't supposed to. Yes, this is a hard one to read, right? It, uh, it speaks of loss in a strange way, where the speaker is currently still experiencing this. This is not the meditations of someone who is over something. This is not the meditation of someone that has 
moved on. This is someone who still feels the icy burn of grief. It still courses through their veins and they are expressing it. This poem doesn't beg. It doesn't need you to love it. This poem just is. This poem, to me, speaks like a truth. Before we conclude, I wanted to introduce you to Richard Sykin in the best way that I could to show that despite all of the grief and all of the tough emotions in his poetry, he's uh, still quite a jovial guy. I found an interview from a long time ago, nine years ago, of Richard Sykin in 2012, and I just wanted to share the first hmm, 30 seconds or so just so you all could understand what type of man he is. All right, so we're introducing Richard Sykin. He's here in Texas. He's a great writer. I'm really, really great. And yeah. Yeah, I write about love and death and more death. Well, yeah, sometimes I do. Because that's that's my target audience, the Twilight crowd. Yeah, because teenage girls. I know, they love me. They love how I love men. And Miley Cyrus. I love her. As you can see, Richard Sykin has quite the sense of humor. I just wanted to end with that because I like to end on a positive note always. Again, Mr. Sykin, if you ever happen to listen to this podcast, please reach out to me. I'd love to know how you're doing since I do adore your poetry more than almost any other poet out there. You're one of my favorites. That's going to conclude our podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. This is Literature and Leaves, and my name is Luke Bartell. Until next time, dear listener.